Hello and welcome to GCD Transmissions, the podcast of Central St. Martin's graphic communication design program. I'm Peter Hall, your host, and I'm here today with Stefan Sagmeister of Sagmeister & Walsh in New York. Stefan happened to be in town for design and art direction and has very kindly agreed to be uh, dragged into Central St. Martin's to uh, give a wonderful lecture to the students. And uh, he's agreed to speak with me for a few minutes about um, what he's currently working on and um, how his work and his studio's work fits into the expanding field of graphic communication design practice. Stefan, thank you very much for coming in. Well, hello, Peter. Hello. Quick question then. Um, you uh, seem to me very much to embody this sense that graphic communication design is moving beyond booklets and logos. Uh, when we first worked together on the Made You Look book, you had just started doing music videos. Uh, there was the one with Lou Reed, I think, that um, uh, I got the impression was quite a tricky project and you didn't feel like it was a great strength. Um, what clearly has happened now is you've moved from CD covers to theatre posters to um, the film, which uh, is, is about to be launched, the Happy film. And I'm very curious about what challenges you've faced in moving between media, in particular from prints and um, CDs and so forth to film? Well, the challenges were enormous. Meaning on, on the one hand, the reason why I in the beginning thought this should be a film on happiness rather than let's say a book on happiness was because I wanted the challenge. It would have been much easier to do a book because we've done many books since. And I think, you know, we kind of know on how to do that. The film, however, turned out to be a much bigger challenge that, than I had thought or hoped for. And that's ultimately, I think, created also a lot of discontent because it turned out that I'm pretty sophisticated as a viewer, but was incredibly unsophisticated as a doer. And that discrepancy is not a good one because there were many, many stages where I looked at something we had just done and I knew it was really bad, but I didn't quite know how to fix it. I would say a situation that I was not used to from, from graphics, because in graphics, you know, through experience, you always have three or four tricks on how to help something out of a hole. And in film, I just didn't have that experience. I would say that in general, I'm happiest when there is maybe like a quarter of the project that's new and three quarters I actually know how to do. And in the film, in many cases, it was vice versa. And so the, when it's vice versa, there's just a lot of anxiety. If I know a hundred, if it's the other way around, if I know a hundred percent, if I did the pro a similar project before, then I'm just getting bored. So I think healthiest for me would be maybe knowing three quarters. In general, of course, I think like every designer who has done this for a while, you know, is looking for new challenges. And film was a good one, but in retrospect, either my expectation should have been lower so that I would have expected a very long and steep learning curve on the job, or I should have maybe made a couple of short films before committing to this feature-length thing. 
and the video wasn't a useful prelude in any way? You know, like we literally just had done that one uh, Lou Reed video and I didn't really follow up on that. At the time, MTV was still big and I didn't really like MTV. So I thought, why should I go into a field where I don't like the most important medium that it will have to be on? So I kind of left that alone again. And of course, we did these little short films like typographic thingies in the meantime, but they are really different. And I had somehow thought that because I do talks and there, you know, I tell a bigger story over an hour and that seems to be normally working quite well, that I also know about long form storytelling, but I really didn't. And what about exhibition designing? In a sense, that's also long form storytelling. Is there a relation? I think that there's a relation, but there is a gigantic difference. I think that actually exhibition design is much closer to book design. And I think I'm comfortable in both because both of them do not necessitate the dictatorship of the designer. Like we can design an exhibition or a book allowing a certain part of the audience to go through it quickly, leave through a book or run through an exhibition and get something from it all the way to a certain part of the audience that might want to read the book from cover to cover or possibly like spend five hours in the exhibition. And we've had heard of people or people talk to me who's been back to the exhibition 10 times and really know it inside out. But that is up to the viewer to make that decision. In film, it's completely different. Every person who is in the film will have the same experience and I have to make that decision for them. And I felt initially very uncomfortable with that role, that I, that everything basically needs to be decided by me or, or by, by neighbors or in the beginning by, by Hilman Curtis, like, you know, basically by us as the team. And, but plenty of it, I think plenty of the difficulties were literally just my lack of experience. I talked to some proper film directors and, you know, many of them started doing videos when they were 12. So questions like, does this cut with this? That is second nature to them was still a big question for me. So there were just so many open, so many open fields. But then as a viewer, I still wanted, I still was sophisticated. So uh, I'm glad it's done. Mm. Does that mean that you won't be rushing back to do another one? means exactly that yes. <laughs> yeah no i think that i would say that the center of what i would want to do is still related to graphics and i would want to keep going away from that but as an example even the, the film i definitely pressed hard for it to be to remain designy like i felt that the only advantage that we would have over a regular documentary filmmaker would be the design background because on almost all other fronts uh i myself i'm in the disadvantage because it's the first film but i'm you know late in life i'm 54 now while somebody else who is 54 who's been in that space all their lives might have already done 10 films and would have all that experience 
So I think that even it would, would actually was the same with furniture. Like I don't think that I would be in a position to make the perfect chair for a library. Like, you know, I have to figure out seating heights and materials and things, all, all things that a normal furniture designer would not even question. So when we made furniture, I made sure that it's going to be graphic-influenced furniture because I think that that's the only way that we, if we have something to contribute, could possibly contribute. Mm. One thing that struck me, you've got the next project on beauty, um, this this project uh, on happiness. I was trying to consider what is an underlying theme. Is there a sort of interest in a, a pursuit of renewal or, or freshness, um, you know, a seeking for renewal that's common to those? And then it occurred to me, well, I may be projecting because you have made quite a discipline out of uh, almost formalizing uh, a structure that allows you to renew, which is your re frequent sabbaticals. Um, is that a, a structure you imagine continuing for some time? And am I right in my um, sort of projection that there's a connection in, in the sense of, of looking for ways to renew constantly a sort of creative spirit? Yeah, I mean, I do think that the idea of the sabbaticals was definitely, if not the best, but then among the very best ideas I've ever had. I really do think that it allows me to step back and look at the bigger picture, that when I'm in the normal run of the studio, it's so easy to get caught up in the small things of the everyday, that it's difficult to see the larger picture. And these larger themes definitely come out of that larger picture. I mean, the, even that whole series of things I've learned in my life so far was a direct result of thinking done in the sabbatical. The happy film and then the happy show were actually started in the sabbatical. And I think that it's very typical that these spaces just allow for the question, why am I doing these things? Why... Why am I actually getting out of bed in the morning? Why not, you know, I don't know, stay in bed and watch reruns of The Sopranos, which I also like. <laughs> and I think that that answer lies more in things that I can find meaningful. And I've, you know, tried out all sorts of stuff. There were times when the studio went more in a, NGO kind of direction to the point where we actually started ourselves a charity and I found that while the starting of it was quite exciting then actually running it was not or was just work and I found that other people might be much better at doing that work than myself and so the question then became more what is the right thing for me to do and I think right now I can very, very confidently answer that. I think the right thing for me to do right now is working on this beauty project mm. because it's, I'm almost, I have to say, more excited about it than I was about happiness because the happiness project was all, had always had the difficulty that I'm not really an expert in it. So one of the main reasons to make it so personal was almost out of default because 
I couldn't really talk about everybody's happiness because I was not a research psychologist. So, you know, who cares what the graphic designer thinks about what makes the butcher in Austria happy? So uh, it had to be about my own happiness, while I think on beauty, at least in part of that field, when it comes to design, I am actually an expert, so I can make, I can make it wider and it doesn't have to be that personal. Now, of course, we'll keep it personal and from a particular point of view anyway, also because I think that that, is, that communicates much stronger and faster if it actually comes from identifiable people as opposed to being sort of like general pronunciations. Mm. Something, you, something you said in um, the talk or and other talks, I think, is, is that there's a, um, a reaction to danger that is embodied, that's uh, pre-cognition, um, so uh, it's instinctive. And looking at your uh, work and thinking about how very much you embrace the body of the designer in your work. I mean, it's been part of studio announcements right back to early projects like scratching type in your body. That's very interesting that the body has been so central to what you do or the embodied practice of design. And just this last question, really, do you think that there we have been a little under the influence of the idea that beauty is something only in the eye? Is there a, a kind of embodied appreciation of beauty? Hmm. I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. I would have to think about it. Uh, I mean, I would say that what I can definitely answer would be that I don't think that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Or there is a very, very good part of beauty. Some people think it's between 25 and 50% that actually is universal. And that is true throughout cultures and throughout vast time periods. And that's not just me saying it, I can actually prove it. So I give you a quick example. Let's say in one of the talks, I show a, a test from a UK scientist, uh, Jim McManus, or in the meantime, an acquaintance, or I hope soon a friend of mine, <laughs> who took a Mondrian and then changed the, changed the lines of that same Mondrian over ever so slightly. And I've, with his permission, have done, have shown this peer to audiences in South America, North America, in Europe, and in Asia. And I basically just ask the audience with showing of hands, which is the real Mondrian, which is the fake Mondrian. And a minimum of 85% of the audience knows which is the real Mondrian. Hmm. But Mondrian did not work with the golden means. So there is no cultural, I don't know, predisposition that we would sort of like gather towards the real one. It literally just comes because Mondrian worked very hard at his, at his compositions, we know from x-rays, because we can see how he moved those lines around carefully until he felt it is right. And when you change those lines ever so slightly, it feels wrong. And it's amazing to me that people from various backgrounds, people who have an art education, people who don't have an art education, would actually feel that. And so I think that the worst thing that you can say about beauty 
is that it's in the eye of the beholder because that always stops all conversation because that basically, if everybody, the idea that everybody sees it differently would also mean that it's basically worthless as a goal, but it turns out that it is not. Though I think Umberto Eco's take in that book he did is that it's not in the eye of the beholder, but it's in the culture of the beholder that there is there are cultural understandings of beauty. Yes, that are there's shared. definitely. I would yeah. say that other than the agreed upon a uh, beauty part, I would say that for sure education, for sure familiarity, and for for sure context, all three play a very big role. Mm. And I mean, we all know if you listen to a song the first time, you might not quite like it, but after the fifth or sixth time, you really get it. And that has something to do with familiarity. We all know that it's a different thing if we experience a Chanel costume in a refugee camp to if we experience a Chanel costume in a, on a runway in Paris. So context plays a very big role. And of course, our education, if I'm an extreme fashion expert, I might look down upon Chanel and see it as, you know, whatever mass market garbage. But if I've never seen a dress before, I might think that this is absolutely gorgeous. So there is, of course, there are all these influences. Mm. But at the basis of it, there is still a commonality of what we find beauty. Those two examples are quite nice examples of embodied beauty too, aren't they? Because sound is not visible, mm -hmm. so you can hear beauty in music and then the dress, the feeling and the, the sound of the dress is also perhaps also an example Absolutely. You know, of the non-visual beauty, non-ocular. I look forward to talking to you more about beauty, um, but thanks very much for popping in and having a chat. It was a pleasure. Podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This has been GCD Transmissions with Stefan Sagmeister from Sagmeister and Walsh. Listen out for the next episode in which I'll be talking to David Crow. GCD Transmissions is a podcast from the Graphic Communication Design Program at Central St. Martins, hosted by Peter Hall and produced by Tommaso Russo. Additional support provided by Kate Pelham, Pierre-Emmanuel Lemaire and Lou Vumitag. Thanks for listening. <laughs>